Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, March fifth, twenty twenty three. It, it's it's really flying. The spring is mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Michael, you got over to the Museum of Broadway this week to talk about... Yes. Uh, not to not talk about, but to see the the... Uh, CD signing, kick, CD kickoff. What was it? Uh, it was a yeah, a CD signing event and Q and A uh, for Knoxville, uh, the cast album of the new Flaherty and Aaron's musical. And you know, being a huge Flaherty and Aaron's fan, I just really wanted to be there. Isn't it usually Aaron's and Flaherty? Flaherty. Well, and <laughs> if we switch them out, there <laughs> won't be a problem. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Knoxville, are we going to see a review of that on uh, uh, Cast Down Reviews soon? Yeah, actually, if you give me one second, I have to grab it. Sure. Sorry, they hadn't, uh, they have signed it for me. Um, it was present was Stephen and Lynn and Jason Danielly, who was in the show and directed it, and Hannah Ellis, who played the female lead. And this is a world premiere recording. Uh, the show has not been done in New York. It was done. Uh, Should have been done in Knoxville. Yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> was it Florida? Asolo Rep. Yeah. Asolo. Yeah. Asolo. Yeah. How do you yeah. pronounce that? I don't know. I, anyway. I, I think that Matt Tamanini goes down there. He calls it Oslo. Okay, fine. Oslo, yeah. Oslo Rep. It's in Florida, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were they were going to do it before the pandemic, and then that happened, and then everything was put on hold, and they thought that was the end of it, and then, uh, but then they they just really rallied, and they came back, and they eventually, it was produced there, and now we have a relatively rare cast album of a show that ha- has not come from Broadway or off Broadway. Um, so I urge you to give it a listen because it is Aaron's and Flaherty, and it's 
got a great cast in addition to Jason. It's got Paul Alexander Nolan and um, Hannah Ellis, as I mentioned. Uh, William um, Parry. William Parry, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, Natalie Venicia Belcone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, really top flight people. And this is based on um, source material at James Agee. Uh, I believe the original title was A Death in the Family. And then mm-hmm. there was a, a stage, a non-musical stage play adaptation by Tad Moselle or Mosel. I never, another name I've never known. I don't that. know either. <laughs> uh, called All the Way Home. Uh, and it's a very sad story, but it's got a lot of opportunity for a lot of wonderful singing and, and great characters in it uh so yeah that's that's that and i got to tell uh jason and lynn and steven that i got my tickets for symphonic ragtime oh. did we discuss that no is that the this- one up in boston Yes. Uh, now, I, I cannot get a ticket for the Ragtime concert that's going to be here in New York because it was, it's been completely sold out for God knows how long. But uh, I noticed that they're doing a new creation called Symphonic Ragtime, and they're going to be doing it in Boston at Symphony Hall and then later at Tanglewood. And so I checked and there were tickets available and actually I got, I was able to get press tickets. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. It's got Alton Fitzgerald white. It's got Elizabeth Stanley. Um, and, uh, you know, many people have said that they think ragtime, if anything might work even better in a concert, uh, atmosphere because of the way that the story is told it's so presentational uh mm. and also uh that you know if it was edited somewhat uh it it probably would work really great in a concert situation so i'm looking forward to it and then of course needless to say the orchestra is going to be magnificent uh and larger than anything we would ever find on broadway um we were just talking before about the fabulous orchestra that has been put together for sweeney todd um just that little video that little few second video of the orchestra playing at the zitz probe and the cast's reaction to the sound of those 26 people it's you know it's good really really does my heart good to know that some sometimes we still get a, a really full lush orchestra like that because nowadays so often uh, producers tend to spend their money elsewhere yeah so uh that is really so much ragtime i I can never have enough for ragtime but Mm -hmm. i heard about the thing up in boston i didn't know about tanglewood Mm. i have to look into that so maybe i'll head up to connecticut but peter you already did head up to connecticut last week to uh, Western Connecticut State University to see a production of a of a less done mm-hmm. uh, piece called Allegro. So mm-hmm. tell us about it. Yeah, I did travel the seventy miles, um, and this production, superbly directed by Justin P. Cowan and wonderfully choreographed by M. K. Lawson, is easily the best of the five Allegros I've seen over the years. And the other four have been pretty terrific too. Um, I find it very interesting that the two best directed musicals that I've seen this season have been in a university and a community theater. 
because Larry Lansman's production of Ragtime, the aforementioned Ragtime, certainly was splendid too. Um, you know, this is <laughs> a tough musical. Um, it was Rodgers and Hammerstein's fourth effort. You know, we think of Oklahoma and Carousel, but then, you know, State Fair happened too. And those were all successful. And this was the first misstep. And um, in a way, you can see why in more than one way, frankly. Um, there are a lot of similarities to our town and our town was less than a decade old. And I'm sure that that um, rankled some people. I mean, it had no scenery to speak of as our town did. And um, now, Mr. Cowan didn't have either, uh, not really. Uh, there was a staircase that was worthy of the Weissman girls and um, and an upper <laughs> bridge a la Avita. But otherwise he relied on a bunch of benches and two pianos on rollers. The ensemble did amazing work in moving the benches into a number of permutations, and the pianist had to stand and play while the ensemble moved the pianos from here to there. I mean, <laughs> how Benny Balbuena and Jackson Tubes did this without missing a beat was one of the evening's great achievements. But anyway, back to our town. Greek chorus instead of a stage manager, but very similar, a lot of narration. We're talking about a small town. We're talking about a doctor's family, and that indeed happened uh, too in our town. Um, we watch a kid grow up. Um, and we, it, it, it's so interesting that there's so much universality, universality in the first act. Um, the pride of an optimism the parents have with a newborn child. The thrill of seeing a baby take his first steps. Um, believe me, I could take you back to 52 Hemlock Street in Arlington and take you to the room in an exact place where my kid Jason took his first steps. You know how thrilling that was. So um, uh, going away to college, you know, I will admit some of it seems a little naive here. Most kids who go away to college revel in the experience of being on their own for the first time. But, you know, Oscar Hammerstein, Joe is homesick. Um, and granted, some of it is because he misses the girl back home. I'll grant you that. But the first verse of it's a darn fine campus doesn't stress that. <laughs> and I wish I were home. I don't know if that many kids wish they were home, even if they are a little lonely. I think they're very glad to be on their own. Anyway, back to the universal aspects. Um, falling in love, worrying that the romance won't work out, finding out that it does. And just like our town, an act, not the same act, I'll grant you, an act ends with a wedding. But, you know, although writers are always told to be specific, Allegro suffers when it goes from the universal to the specific, because the the whole point is a doctor who prefers small town life and would take a pay cut and a prestige cut. That isn't something which most people can identify or even understand. Um, so that's the problem. That's what happens in the second act. The kid becomes a doctor, just like his daddy, and he just doesn't like being in the big city treating hypochondriacs. He wants to be back home doing really good work. And that's that's a noble thing, I'll grant you. But I, uh, going from everybody saying, oh, yeah, I had that experience. Um, oh, yes, I, I did that. Oh, I saw that. Yes. Now you're in a world where um, most people can identify. So I can really see why this show has been such a problem. There are a lot of similarities to Merritt And that's kind of interesting because Sondheim stated time and time again that he spent his whole life trying to fix Allegro. Um, he had worked on it as a gopher um, when he was 17 years old. Oscar Hammerstein, uh, his mentor, hired him to be a gopher. And um, so... He really was there from the outset, seeing what was going on. And um, so it's 
it's very interesting that so much of Merrily um, seems to um, have its basis in um, Allegro, Bec- uh, because for one thing, we're talking about the life of a person um, and uh, going from youth to um, uh, an attenuated age. I mean, let's see. 25th anniversary and Franklin Shepard goes back. So what is that? He may, he's in his 40s. Joseph Taylor Jr. only goes up to 35, but you get the point. Um, it's about a character who sells out. Uh, Joe does it out of his love for his wife. I'll grant you not as Franklin does uh, to become rich and famous. But the funny thing was that here, Justin P. Cowan made us remember Merrily even more because he started with a ceremony as the original Merrily did. Uh, granted, it's not a graduation here. It's uh, Joe getting an award and getting a promotion, and he went backwards. All right, he, uh, not really. All right, here's here's what I mean. At every every regional community theater, college theater has been told time and time and time again, you cannot change a word when you do a show. Not a word. <laughs> well, he didn't. He just took the last scene where Joseph Taylor Jr. gets that award and his promotion and put it up front. Oh, we're going to hear it later, too. But he put it up front. And then what he did was have the show, like a movie going backwards, um, being uh, spun backwards. Uh, You had highlights from what you were going to see done wordlessly. But um, again, kids had to move backwards and all this kind of business. And um, you went all the way from that point um, to um, his being born, which is where Allegro starts originally um, with Marjorie Taylor in bed um, with her newborn kid. So to see that, you realize that this was what you were going to see later. And I thought it was a brilliant thing. And not only that, brilliantly performed by the kids. I don't want to think how many times they had to spend doing this because, of course, walking backwards and doing things backwards is much harder than doing things straight forward, isn't it? I mean, you know, so mm-hmm. so it it really was very, very impressive to see this quick recap of the show. Um, so, but you know what's what's also great here is the fact that when you early in a show, when you see something that you know is difficult for the actors to do, and you see them doing it splendidly, which this ensemble did, you have confidence that the show is going to be wonderful. So, and um, that turned out to be true. Now, like Merrily, there's even a best friend named Charlie. And my, did Jacob Erdoli, uh, Erdotti, I'm sorry, play it with zest and the good humor that Lonnie Price brought to the original in Merrily. Um, a kid named Antonio Porciello was an admirable Joe and a character who, to whom a lot happens, but who doesn't take much action. Very similar to Bobby and company. You know, we hear that um, um, leveled against him. And it, there's a very similar situation here. Um, Audrey Lavero was his not so wife, not so nice wife, Jenny. And she has everything to become a star. The style the distinctiveness, the voice, and the looks. I won't be surprised if we see her uh, many, many times in the future. But you know what's really interesting was Chloe Kramer and uh, Ben Muckledaler, who were Joe's parents. And their voices on A Fellow Needs a Girl was stunning. But here's the thing. After the song, Cowan had them leave the stage with genuine lust in their eyes. And we really got the impression they were off to make love. How wonderful! To see the couple, a ma and a pa, that not just sentimental, but sexy too, which you don't really see in a musical where parents are concerned. You know, we never see Mr. and Mrs. McAfee and Bye Bye Birdie looking lustful at each other. Well, here you did, and that was great. Um, Yasmin de Jesus got the audience to cheer in A Gentleman is a Dope, which is a terrific 11 o'clock number. But you know what occurred to me for the first time? That this song should have been called 
the doctor is a dope because that's what she's really talking about. And not just for the alliteration, but I'll bet that R&H, who are savvy businessmen, figured they might get a pop recording or two by being less specific. You know, nobody would make a record called The Doctor is a Dope, but The Gentleman is a Dope. Well, I'm sure there are many women who think that many a gentleman is, and many men who think a gentleman is a dope too. <laughs> so, um, and they did get at least one recording that I know of by Joe Stafford, who was a big star in her day. So, uh, but I won't be surprised if that's the reason. But I have a feeling if the show were written today, I think the song would be called uh, uh, The Doctor is a Dope, because we don't expect many show songs to get pop recordings um i have to say uh, many times in a chorus there's often someone who catches your eye and you know it's someone who uh, takes the role in the assignment very seriously and does it as if the most important job in the role and that was megan mayer here for me playing one of uh, jenny's friends so anyway a triumph all around Uh, no allegra will never be a major musical as rnh would have liked it to be but it got the best possible production here. And I assure you, this will not be the last production I see at Western Connecticut State University, especially if Justin P. Cowan and M.K. Lawson are on the scene. Well, I'm glad that this all turned out really well. Peter, you previewed this Allegra production on February 12th on our on our broadcast. Um, so I don't want to hear from anybody that they wish they had known that it was going to play. But <laughs> you gave them fair warning. And unfortunately, today is yeah, the last performance. Last day, yeah. and, Very nice. Uh, both um, both uh, Ted Chapin, formerly of r and and Andy Hammerstein, certainly who will always be uh, part of r and in its own way, um, mm-hmm. are doing nice uh, post-play talk. And it's nice of them to go out there and do that. Yeah, and the tickets uh, were... Uh, Ten to thirty dollars. So, wow. what a steal! Uh, what a steal! You know, what you know for those completists that have to see everything. There was almost no reason to go see this. I mean, even the weather has been cooperating this year. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, okay. I, uh, yeah. I I think it's fair to say that the gentleman is a dope is the only thing approaching a hit from the score. But I can never understand. There's another song that I think is so fantastic, and I don't know why it never has. And that song is called You Are Never Away. Uh huh. I think so far got some uh, recordings. So far. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. And, uh, and I know you also like, what is it called? Come Home? Yeah, the final song. Yeah. Um, and um, certainly A Fellow Needs a Girl got recordings, too. So, um, But the thing was, I'm sure a lot of this had to do with the fact it was in advance. Just like Mr. President, which was right. a flop in 1962, there were a million recordings of those songs before the show opened. <laughs> I bet there were none after it opened. Well, You Are Never Away. If you're not familiar with it, uh, listen to it. It's so beautiful. It's got mm-hmm. a, a, a great part for the, the the leading man and but then the chorus comes in and makes it even more beautiful. oh yeah it is it really is something and these <laughs> kids did that moment proud mm. they really did wish i had seen it heard it <laughs> <laughs> all right so something that you did see and hear michael is uh conversations after sex at the irish arts center so tell us about this well a kind of intriguing title to begin with uh this is a play by mark o'halloran that had its world premiere at the Dublin Theatre Festival in 2021. And it, uh, for what it's worth, it was the winner of the Best New Play Award from the Irish Times Theatre Awards uh, in that same year. And now it is at the Irish Arts Centre 
uh, which I believe has recently moved and is yeah. now on yeah. 11th Avenue at mm-hmm. like 51st mm-hmm. Street. And it's a very nice um, venue, first of all. Very nice new venue. So you'll enjoy going to it uh, for that reason. I um, The big problem for me here was the accents, uh, especially because the the play is written rather confusingly to begin with i can only describe it as a series of blackouts uh very short scenes most of them involving one man and one woman uh talking uh, sometimes in bed sometimes as they're getting out of bed or uh getting in into bed uh and either before right before or after sex not necessarily always after and they're both very scantily clad throughout the entire show. So, um, you know, if, if that's, <laughs> if that's a, a marketing uh, ploy um, that this going to work for you, you just know that. And also uh, uh, not surprising to hear that both of the, these actors are very attractive. So, um, so you'll have something to look at as far as that. Um, and, uh, but the accents, made it all the more difficult for me to try to figure out if we were supposed to be seeing the same couple in each blackout sketch or different couples. Uh, at one point, uh, he, although he still had an Irish accent, the uh, the leading man made some reference to having only recently learned English and uh then he mentioned that he was from uh from another country uh his name uh, the actress but name by the way and i'm sure i'm going to murder this is fian f i o n n uh then it, letter o with an accent mark on it um and then his last name is loingsai l o i n g s i g h uh, and the lady, uh, the chief lady is Kate Stanley Brennan, a lot easier to pronounce. Um, and then there was another woman who comes in occasionally. So anyway, I was not sure if they were supposed to be the same people or not. Then I, I, I thought, well, they're not supposed to be the same couple, uh, but I still don't know how many different couples they were supposed to be. And then I read a note in the program, which is only online. They don't give you a printed program. And there it says, in a series of unexpected and unguarded conversations after anonymous sexual encounters, a a woman discovers men with the same deep need to communicate and connect in the lonely atomized city. So that leads me to believe that the female character is supposed to be the same character throughout and all the men are supposed to be different and i so i guess based on what i just read (laughs) that that's what it is but i i really had a great amount of trouble following uh what was going on and what they were saying because of the accents sometimes i can tune into accents like that um quickly not on in this case uh maybe partly because of the acoustics of the space um there wasn't a lot of scenery so there was a lot of open space and so i felt like maybe the words um were they didn't have anything to sort of bounce off of uh and i guess maybe that was part of the problem 
Um, so that was that. And then, oh, and then, yes, this other female character occasionally comes in. And I had, I still not sure if she was supposed to be the former lover of the woman or um, someone else I know who saw the play uh, on a day separate from me said he thought it was her sister. Um, so uh, we all we all obviously sound very confused. I don't know if it's just us not being sharp enough to get what was going on or if there were these real problems with communication in the play. Um, I did detect some uh some pithy observations and some uh, worthy uh, discussion of, about intimacy, et cetera, throughout the course of it. But I, I just, my confusion level was high enough that I, I, I feel like I missed a lot of it and I'm not sure how much is actually there anyway. So uh, that's, that's my experience with that. The show was packed maybe because of the scantily oh. clad actors, <laughs> um, at least partly, or maybe it's also that the, this uh, I don't know a lot about this company, but it seems like they might have a following. Uh, but check it out because it's a really wonderful venue, as I said, uh, and it's kind of far from the frenetic uh, Times Square area that uh, sometimes it's trial even to go, you know, see a show <laughs> in in Midtown. Mm. But this is, you, you know, you're nice and a little. It's not that far away, but it's remote enough that it feels quiet and. And it's just very calm and a nice place to see a show. Yeah, if you uh, are looking for the theater and you end up in the water, you've gone too far. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those. (laughs) it, It is very close to the water there. All right, so that is uh, Conversations After Sex at the Irish Arts Center on 11th Avenue in Hell's Kitchen. It's uh, playing through March 11th, so you have a, about a week, a little less than a week to go check it out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter, you got over to the Park Avenue Armory, um, where you saw a production of Love. So tell us about this. It's not the most logical title for the play. Um, I know that the playwright and director, one and the same, Alexander Zeldin, uh, talks about the fact that these people love each other. And uh, I know that that's true to some degree, but um, but mm, maybe he wanted to obfuscate the fact that this was a tough play. It's a good play. It's a terrific play. He does everything very well, this playwright. And he directs it very nicely, too. However, it is tough going because it is about the homeless situation. And we see three generations of people uh, in a homeless shelter uh, being thrown together and having to deal with each other when they go into the common areas. So um, there's a grown son and his very feeble old mother. That's uh, that generation. We have uh, the generation of uh, parents of young children, um, um, a husband and wife with uh, a boy and a girl. And um, needless to say, um, they, along with everybody else, is not happy to be there. And um, you also have, by the way, um, some foreign people, um, people who uh, speak in Arabic. And um, we'll, you'll hear a bit of Arabic in the play. So um, they're all thrown together, you know, so... Um, we hear that the United States is a melting pot. Well, homeless shelters turn out to be melting pots too, for better or worse. That's what this place really is. Like a raisin in the sun, it starts with the idea of getting into the bathroom before somebody else can. Because needless to say, um, there isn't a facility in each room for a bathroom. So, um, And the thing is, everybody's embarrassed to be there. 
you know, the, what better example of how you failed in life than being in a situation like this? However, the father um, tries to be so perky and act as if nothing's wrong. And the mother tries to do that as well. She doesn't do it nearly as successfully. Uh, she keeps on saying to him, you know, when are we going to get out? What can you do? Go to this office, get this help, so on and so forth. And we we do find out there's a lot of blood red tape that goes on um, in getting people in or out of these places that um, it's, it's a very hard thing and it's very very sad to watch these people struggle with that so um, you know it's, it's funny in, in Woman of the Year you have that song do you know who your neighbors are that's wonderful well here it's not so wonderful they don't want to know each other um, they everybody wants to keep to himself really every now and then they reach out because that that's a human need to reach out, but they often pull right back again too. So, um, but it, these people do what they can. I mean, uh, shampoo turns out to be dishwashing liquid because that's the best they have, you know? So, um, but we do find out that grown son does love his mother because he washes her hair so lovingly. And one can argue that she's all he has, you know, that all they have is each other. But um, the mother will turn out to do something that um, is is quite, quite difficult to take. And uh, it turns out to be the real climax of the play. And, um, well, yeah, stuff about possessions. That's my shelf. Think about that. That's my shelf. Mm. I mean, you know, what could be more basic than a shelf? And that's what they're fighting over. Not this, that's my room. That's my this. That's my, no, that's my shelf. What a way of telling us that they, they really are impoverished. The, the teenage boy, of course, avoids that old woman like crazy. I mean, so many teen boys do that. Uh, routinely, but this boy really uh, conveys that he is afraid he's looking at his future, that he's going to be there forever, and that's really hard. His The daughter wants to go to school. How many kids want to go to school? But it's an escape, you know, at, at least there. Nobody knows where she's living. So it's very, very powerful to hear this kid um, want to go to school and all these people who want to fly over the cuckoo's nest and hope they will. So, um, I'm telling you, when the father comes home with two grocery bags, you really think of it's it's Christmas, the way they react. Two grocery bags. I mean, wow, where did all these wonderful things come from? How did they afford them? You know, but they did. And uh, it's just so pathetic to see you know, when people, when father comes home, mother comes home with groceries, you know, kids in regular homes barely look up, you know, and um, there might be a what do you get question. But I mean, here it's, it's like they discovered gold. So um but you know what's so interesting too, even though they're in tough shape, Christmas is coming and they actually, um, the father actually spent money on Christmas decorations to hang up in the shelter to make it look like Christmas. Again, he's trying his best to indicate that things aren't as bad as they seem. It's so pathetic when he says, when all this is done, he says to his daughter, I'll take you to McDonald's. I mean, to think that that would be a treat. But in these circumstances, it certainly certainly is. You also watch somebody eating, when food finally arrives, somebody eating as fast as Harpo Marx does in room service. Uh, I don't know if you know that movie or if you know that <laughs> scene, but they've been starving for a long time. And I'm telling you, Harpo is amazing in the way that he eats so fast, um, spoon going back and forth and back and forth and back. That's what happens here. Uh, because, um, But the most poignant line comes at the end. When the daughter says, are we staying here for Christmas, Dad? And you know that they are. So a very powerful play. 
but it's not one that's going to make you sing that's entertainment. So it's there till the 25th of the month. And um, if you really want a, a heady experience, yeah, this is one of the best things you can see. But again, depressing. All right. So that is Love at the Park Avenue Armory. It's uh, playing through March 25th, as Peter mentioned. And uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, you got over to the Soho Playhouse to see Eric Bogosian's One Plus One. Uh, So tell us about this. Well, this was a very unexpected experience for me. Um, So imagine you go to... uh, small off-Broadway venue, one that's um, not used very often, as far as I know. Uh, I'm, I'm almost never there. Uh, and you see a new play. And what happens is in the first scene, there is a waitress serving a, a customer in a restaurant. And the waitress um, seems to be flirting with the male customer a little bit. And uh, at some point, asks him if he's a producer. Um, this restaurant is in Los Angeles, by the way. <laughs> mm. um, and so he says, uh, with a British accent, he says, uh, no, no, I'm not a producer. I'm a photographer. And so one thing leads to another, and uh, they wind up becoming involved. Uh, oh, by the way, she's standing there um, during her shift, standing at his table for like 10 minutes at a time and having a long conversation with this guy while her manager is screaming at her to do her job. But she still remains um, at the table. And apparently she retains her job uh, to the point where later on the manager tells her that she's a golden employee. Uh, (laughs) But we also find out that the manager wants to of course get in there too um so (laughs) that explains that all right so all that happens so then they uh start uh taking photos of this young actress in the other guys in the photographer's studio and gradually they become pornographic photos and then um then they leak out on the internet and she starts getting going viral and getting all these hits and and theoretically um making all kinds of she and the photographer are making lots of money uh from people just clicking on her photos because even though it's only like two cents a click um she's supposed to be getting hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views and so then uh we see her start to drink uh and do drugs and Um, things end very, very, very badly for her. Now, if you went in and saw this play and didn't know who wrote it, wouldn't you think it might be some neophyte, um, you know, who, uh, who is using all these rather cliched situations to write a play? Uh, but no, it's Eric Bogosian. Uh, so I was really quite surprised uh that that he would write about something like this i think in one of the materials uh in the program or in the press release uh there's a a line to the effect of this does still happen this kind of thing does still happen um i mean i i guess we know that but i i feel like we've seen it 
and heard it so many times before. That I mean, uh, uh, just as uh, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen Harvey uh, Harvey Weinstein be mm-hmm. convicted again mm-hmm. to serve uh, another long stretch that, in essence, mm-hmm. putting him in prison for the rest of his life for this type of behavior. Yeah, uh, I, I suppose I, we've seen it more in real life than in dramatum dramatization i I, so maybe that's something that bogosian had in mind but everything in it seemed so cliche that i i it just didn't seem worthwhile to me uh, it's interesting to me uh i i wonder how this started how eric bogosian's first thought was and how what his first draft of this play was. Mm. I guess you never really get to see that. And if there was, uh, uh, were cuts made by the, by a director or a dramaturg or something like that. Although Eric is so, uh, famous and popular that maybe he's, uh, he's at the point where that, that wouldn't happen to his work. But, uh, but I get totally what you're saying, Michael. It's, it seems very, it seems pedantic. Um, and, uh, and try and try and and, and we should expect something better from him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was my reaction, but, um, but I, (laughs) there's another play we're going to talk about where I had a completely different reaction from everyone else. So, uh, who knows, you know, uh, who, who, you know, who can say who's right. Um, I, yeah, I I am looking through his other, I'm looking through his other work and I mean, he seemingly has, uh, you know, I want to say about a hundred or so produced works in television, film, and stage. Wow. Uh, and so uh, he is <laughs> churning them out. I, you know, and, and they say people write about what they know. Mm-hmm. So, well, it's worth mentioning uh, as for, for you what you really what you recently have brought up. Um, there seem to be a lot of people behind this. It says one plus one received its world premiere in a co-production between New York Stage and Film uh, and the Powerhouse Theater at Vassar College in mm-hmm. 2008. Then it received a workshop production at the Black Box in November 2021. Uh, directed by Matt Oaken and featuring Katie North as Brian, uh, Daniel Ayulo as Phil, Melanie Gardner as uh, Michael Gardner as Carl. Um, and those are the three actors that, that are in this production, Katie North, Daniel Yayulo, and Michael Gardner, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The production headlined the Chain Theater Festival in July 2022 before moving off-Broadway to the Soho Playhouse with the same cast and creative team. But it's a lot of uh, development for a little three-character play. <laughs> yeah. With mm. basically no, basically no set. Basically, no set. Um, so I just, I was surprised. There were, uh, I, I will say, there were a couple of things in it um, that uh, were not quite along the, the most stereotypical lines that we always see in stories like this. For example, the fact that the uh, waitress was more the aggressor in the scene, uh, the first scene in the restaurant. It seemed like she was the one who really. Uh, was the aggressor in pursuing something happening and them getting together and having her picture taken and then seeing what was going to happen from that. Uh, and then also um, 
I can't say too much about the ending. Uh, let's just say that things turn out very, very, very badly for this woman uh, in particular. And uh, there was something that happened at the end uh, that was really quite touching. And I did not expect that. And it involved the other character, the manager of the restaurant, Michael Gardner, as Carl. Um, uh, so there is that. And those two moments, I thought, hmm, this is this is intriguing. But then so much of it just seemed so so much of a rehash to me and like very well trod uh territory uh that i that i've seen before uh getting back to the uh amount of content that he is putting out just in a couple of weeks and now we have uh drinking in america that's going to be opening up uh uh the at the minetta lane an audible production uh eric bagosian uh oh right yes you know a drinking in america and do you have the um the one plus one playbill handy I, I'm, I'm wondering if it was uh who produced it is it is it produced by soho or is it a rental or what do you know who this? uh it's oh well it says the black box and soho playhouse present so whatever the okay. black box is so, Black Box, a 501c3 nonprofit based in northern New Jersey, collaborative, collaborative group of artists pivoted during the pandemic, and the organization has become the area's prime incubator for new and under, underproduced works by world-class playwrights. Uh, let's see. Yeah, there's n- nothing, that, nothing more than that. And then, I mean, Soho might be listed just because they're the landlord, but I don't they know. They may be, yeah, yeah. You know, As I say, I don't, I don't know about you guys. I, I just, I seem to rarely go there. Uh, there doesn't seem to. I'm not sure how often they produce stuff there, or if I'm not on their list, or if. Gee, I feel like I go there a lot, but it's usually for one person shows. Oh, okay. yeah, I think it's usually rentals. Yeah, and um, usually uh, glorified stand-up comedians. That's what oh, it okay. Usually is. Okay, so I probably just skip a lot of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so that's uh, Eric Bogosian's One Plus One at Soho Playhouse. It's playing through March 19th, so you have about two weeks to go check that out. Uh, and then we'll be talking about drinking in America in a couple of weeks, probably. Mm-hmm. So uh might revisit that. So, <laughs> Peter, you got over to City Center to see the Mint Theater Company's production of Becomes a Woman. So tell us about this. Well, uh, Michael wrote a review of it on Talking broadway all that chat and um so i was prepared not to much like it but i have to say i liked it quite a bit i'll grant you that um it, it's a very common situation ironically enough i'm watching the movie of tessa the d'urbervilles now and um the same type of thing occurs that here's this young um working class woman and um the boss takes an interest in her and um and she of course is smitten with him and um and it's not hard to understand that she's certainly going to have a baby by him and it's not going to be long before he um abandons her so i'll grant you that's a very uh, trite situation um but i think um betty smith's dialogue uh, is really terrific uh, there's much said about the fact that she really preferred to be a playwright than um a novelist and of course she was a novelist with the tree grows in brooklyn which was an enormous success not only as a book but as a, a, a movie and less success as a as a musical but the score is 
phenomenal. Uh, I really urge everybody to get that original cast album. But anyway, um, he used the same name, Francie Nolan, uh, as the young girl in <laughs> Three Girls in Brooklyn, but it's not the same character. I, um, a very different situation. And um, so she's the one who works in this store and she's a song plugger. She sings um, in those days, we're talking way back to the turn of the century. Um, there were records really didn't exist per se. And so as a result, people would buy sheet music and go home and play it on their piano. Well, a lot of people said, let me hear that song. And the song that she sings left all, uh, left all alone <laughs> again, blues, which, um, many might know from the cast album of very good Eddie, even though as Michael wisely pointed out, it didn't come from that. It came from a Jerome Kern show called the night boat, which by the way, if you're sitting close, you'll even see it on the sheet music on the piano. They make it very clear. <laughs> that's what it's from. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, it's a terrific song and, um, done at a much slower pace. And it's a, it's, not arbitrarily chosen because at the end of the show you'll hear it again and she has had the left all alone again blues which i think is really very powerful so um there she is falling in love with the boss's son and as i say he abandons her but um there are crackling scenes um in between one when um the um suitor comes home to meet her family and the thing is that uh, she is, of course, so embarrassed by the fact that she lives in these modest surroundings and her father's a little on the rough side and so is her mother. And she wants them to behave and all that kind of business and make a good impression when really it's not worth making a good impression on this guy because uh, he's going to impress them in a very different way. And there's a marvelous scene where she fully expects that he's going to say we're getting married. And he doesn't say it. She really thought it was going to happen that night. And we're really led to believe that he gave her every indication that indeed they were going to be married. But um, seeing that family, seeing that situation and everything that goes with it, no, no, uh, it's not going to happen. Well, another crackling scene comes in the in the third act of the play. Yes, it's a three act play. And it comes when uh, the, the owner of the store, the the father of the the errant son uh, comes to confront her because he assumes that she's going to want some sort of settlement and it, she even wants to go further than that. So um, the scene between them is marvelously written too. Um, it's not sturm und drang. It isn't at all. I mean, it's very carefully measured. This father knows that he has, well, wealth on his side at least, you know, and, and that um, he'd be able to maneuver anything he wanted. But He's not cruel in the way that he comes across. He's brass tacks, but he's not cruel. And the scene goes in a very different direction than you might think. So all this added up to me to be a very, very worthwhile experience because of the dialogue, because of the characterizations. Wonderful acting. Wonderful acting. Um, Emma Pfizer Price as Francie. Phenomenal. Um, Antoinette Levecchia as the mother. Um, and um, Jeb Brown as the father. Phenomenal. Um, both uh, son and father of the um, company, which, by the way, is Cress Company. Not to be confused with Kresge, which was a, a chain but way back when. Um, but as the uh, son, Peter Towns, uh, Peterson Townsend, and as the uh, father, Dwayne Boutte, uh, terrific performances all. So, Michael, you're on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I reacted very differently to the dialogue, I guess. Uh, I, I find this story very compelling, and I always think it's worthwhile to look back at 
shows plays set in you know situations and venues so long ago uh to see how much life may have changed the one thing i mentioned in my review is it's incredible in the first scene set in in this it's it's called a dime store Mm -hmm. um but they do spend seem to spend most or all of their time plugging songs so i guess uh those were places where that happened uh anyway um and to see all of these men coming in <laughs> during work hours uh, and f- shamelessly, flagrantly flirting with these women, you know, while they're on the floor. Uh, can you imagine if, if that if that happened today? It's just things that used to be acceptable and, and now are, are really not. But that was that was the way it was. Men could could really do anything like that um so i think that you know it's it's worth it to see that but once uh that scene was over and everything else started to happen it just seemed to me that it happened everything in such a melodramatic way um and very quickly uh, and very schematically uh, uh what i said at the end of my review was that uh some people seeing this may feel that uh, Betty Smith's talents were better served as a novelist than as a dramatist. And and I think the reason I feel that way is because, of course, in novels, you have so much more time. Uh, you can expand on things. Uh, the novels don't have to be so concise. Uh, you don't have to worry about running time, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But here, I think it seemed like everything was happening so quickly and there was so much uh angst and so much yelling uh in in many scenes that i had a very negative reaction to it uh i do agree uh with peter about that uh final scene or penultimate scene between the father of uh the young man who has done uh the leading lady wrong uh and he did did i guess peter mentioned that the father is the owner of the the store where they work and i think uh we're led to believe it's supposed to be a chain so he's a very wealthy person uh and i did think that that uh was written very well and not maybe as cliched as as you might have feared it would be uh it reminded me there's a scene in um la traviata that's somewhat similar uh but uh but overall I, I i i don't know i i can't really explain it anymore i just seemed to me that it came across as very melodramatic and schematic and i um i so i said that maybe the play wasn't was never pre- did do we mention that this is the world premiere yeah. production yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah maybe it was never produced because uh, uh people didn't like a woman writing about things like that in 1930 that's certainly possible that there was that kind of uh misogyny or or whatever or, or discrimination against women playwrights but maybe maybe just maybe some people who read this play just didn't like it and maybe they felt the same as i did that it was a little too over the top and melodramatic um so that's what makes the world go round <laughs> it sure does um i regret that i didn't mention that the director was Britt burke um who did a terrific job i thought so um i i do want to atone for that sin and bring that up 
Oh, here's a fun little thing. I has, may have mentioned that I was in a high school production of Very Good Eddie. Were you? And so I recognized the Left All Alone Again blues as soon as it started, <laughs> early, early mm-hmm. in, in Act One. It may have been the first thing we heard. Is that? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then it comes back uh, in snippets uh, three or four times later. Uh, so it was really this, you know, so the, I, I was just thrilled. <laughs> it just was so, so much fun for me to hear that in a completely different context. And I immediately actually from the theater uh, at intermission, I think I called Virginia Seidel. Oh, you know her. Yeah, yeah I who do lives, too. Yeah. Who lives in my building and who oh, really? sang that song on Broadway. Yeah. And I couldn't reach her um, from the theater, I think because it's subterranean and I didn't have any service. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and then I forgot to call her the next day, but I called her like two days later and, and she got on the phone. She said, yes. And I said, Virginia, I have, so- I have something so fun to tell you. She said, yes, yes. I said, I went to see this play called Becomes a Woman. And she's like, Michael, I saw it. <laughs> but yes, a friend brought me and, you know, having no idea. And this woman comes out and starts singing the Left All Alone Again blues. And I start, you know, hitting my friend and saying, I sang that on Broadway. <laughs> she sure did. She sure did. I, frankly, I like the recording better than the way it's done here because it's it's a mile a minute the way Virginia Seidel sings it. And yes. I understand that if you're left all alone, you might be very winsome and sing it slow. But I'll tell you, uh, when you got lyrics like I like dogs and I like rabbits, I mean, you know, I mean, it's and even goldfish. And even goldfish, right? So, but uh, no, I, I it was good to hear again, and it it's moved me to take out my very good ADE album and play it again. So Virginia said she um, stayed afterwards to to meet uh, that young lady, that that uh, fabulous lead actress. And she is good. Yes, yeah, indeed. really, really, really superb. And uh, she told her, you know, I sang that on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> and the woman and uh, the woman uh the actress just thought that that was the neatest thing she had ever heard. Oh good, I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that is Becomes a Woman, the Min Theater Company production at City Center and it's uh playing through March 18th. It's about uh 2 weeks left in that in that run as well. So Michael, um you had a couple of uh folks who were close to you that made a large impression on your life uh, that had passed away. And we wanted to talk briefly about them. Yeah. I, you know, we don't normally do this, but I wanted to mention these two people because it does point up how pivotal people can be in your lives Mm -hmm. without even maybe even realizing it. Uh, Hmm. We lost my cousin and godmother, Diane Sclafani recently, and she and her husband, uh, among their other accomplishments, they published a weekly newspaper on Staten Island for years called the Staten Island Register. And so I started working there when I was still in high school. And believe it or not, uh, I started reviewing shows then, uh, first just local shows, but then somehow uh, it was pointed out to me that I might be able to get free tickets for Broadway shows to review them. And sure enough, um, I got on the second night list. Uh, and and that's where it all started. And as they say, the rest is history. Um, so I've been reviewing 
uh, amateur and professional shows, including Broadway and Off-Broadway, since probably 1974 or so. Mm. Um, and I'm sure, I mean, who knows? I might have gotten into that field some other way if they hadn't owned that newspaper, but they gave me the job. And I, I think it's it's highly likely that I would not have gotten into that field. And who knows what else I'd be doing. I wanted, I thought I wanted to be a teacher at one point. So maybe that's what I would, would have been doing. Um, but anyway, and then also uh, Joe Sclafani, uh, Diane's husband, he was pivotal in a way that, that, you know, was completely unplanned. Uh, we would go and spend a lot of time at their house because they were our cousins. And they uh, had a, in their record collection, they had some operas. Um, I, I remember specifically two of them. He had uh, La Traviata with Anna Maffo and Madame Butterfly with Renata Tibaldi. And I was just intrigued by the covers, first of all. And then I started to listen to them at their house and I really loved them. And so if it hadn't been for him and those records, I don't know when or if I would have gotten into opera. Um mm. So that's two kind of major things, I, I, I think. And then the other person I lost was who basically was my first music teacher, Richard Marin. Uh, he taught at IS-24 when I was going there on Staten Island. And he um, would play for the shows. They did Broadway musicals. The first one I remember I saw they did was South Pacific. And then... Uh, when I got there, they uh, were preparing to do Annie Get Your Gun, and I auditioned for it. I don't remember what I sang, uh, but I remember that that Richard played for me, and I remember that he wrote down on the card that I was a boy soprano because mm. I was. I, you know, my voice hadn't changed yet. <laughs> um, anyway, I didn't get into the show, uh, but then uh, he was my music teacher there, and. Uh, I remember I wrote a, um, this is going to sound crazy. I wrote a parody of Annie Get Your Gun to do as a, a show that we were doing um, uh, because I was involved in like environmental things at that time. And it was about the evils of pollution. Wow. And so I took Annie Get Your Gun and wrote something called Fanny Get Your Gas Mask mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, changed the lyrics to the songs and, and situations. And he, um, wasn't able to play the show live but so what he did what richard did was he recorded the whole score on a tape recorder uh him playing piano and we sang to that um so that was a very very early seminal pivotal uh event in my life and uh we we remained in contact on and off uh through the decades because we, i had another uh mutual friend who stayed very close to him and uh, uh, he and his wife and, and I uh, got together on a few occasions, and we just lost him unexpectedly last week to a massive mm. stroke. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think that Peter and I and James, maybe to a somewhat lesser extent, realize that we are at an age now where so oh, many, yeah. so, so many people are going. And you look back and you're you're so happy to have them in your lives and you just remember them fondly and and hope that they know how much of a difference they made in your life mm -hmm. that's wonderful 
All right. So we're coming up on an hour, and I have to actually run because I'm seeing Wicked this afternoon uh-huh. at the Gersh when my uh, my daughter Charlotte's uh, school is got a school trip out there, and I'm going uh, with them to go see it again. I haven't checked in with Wicked in a long time, so... Let's wrap it up for this morning. Before we get on to our trivia on our musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. This is a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. You can... Get Broadway Radio's offerings at Patreon, patreon.com slash Broadway Radio, which will help support us, uh, keep bringing Broadway Radio to you. Uh, and you also, as a Patreon member, will get Broadway Radio's uh, um, published works before anybody else. Uh, you can also listen to us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Tuner, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your finer podcasts. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Well, I said nine currently active Broadway theaters have never had the pleasure or honor of having a Tony-winning Best Musical originate in their houses. Well, Tony Janicki, Josh Israel, Sean Logan, J. Aubrey Jones, Brigadude, Greg Christensen, Robert Lobiondo, and Ingrid Gammerman. Ingrid Gammerman said, no, there were 12. The Ambassador, the American Airlines, the Belasco, the Booth, the Hayes, the Hudson, the James Earl Jones, Lena Horn, Lyric Theater, Samuel Friedman, Stephen Sondheim, and Studio 54. Well, that settles my hash. Okay. <laughs> this week's question, a very fanciful one. Let's say that an actor who's about to go on in Driving Miss Daisy gets terrible stage fright and says he simply can't do it. His director's response might be, the name of a song written for a 50s film musical. Hint. <laughs> Although the film did retain the title of the original stage show, it bore very little resemblance to what played Broadway. What's the film musical? What's the song? And how does it apply to the Driving Miss Daisy situation? My goodness. Yes. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broaderradio.com, and Peter will let you know if you're on the right track. Peter, I can't wait for your upcoming book. Oh, yeah. Broad, uh, Brain Teasers for Broadway Geniuses. Um, not until September, but I just see the cover, and I like it a lot. Well, at least that. Have, oh, so exciting. September, so it'll be a good stocking stuffer next, uh, next holiday season. Indeed. <laughs> so, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Ah, well, uh, I mentioned that we have been lucky enough to get some really excellent new writers for our cast album reviews site. And uh, one of the one of the most recent additions is really very exciting. This fellow named Dan Rubens, um, his bio, he's a theater critic for Slant magazine, for which he also writes film and TV reviews. He is a contributor to the New Yorker's briefly noted book review column. When not at the theater, Dan is an educator, composer, and arts nonprofit leader focused on empowering youth with serious illnesses. So um, he is a really great guy. But in addition to that, he is the son of Dan Rubens, uh, no, of Josh Rubens, excuse me, who was the co-author of a musical called Brownstone. And uh, when I had lunch with Dan the other day, uh, he he 
told me that. And I said, well, I saw it. Uh, I saw it off Broadway, even though it didn't have a very long run. And then, of course, we started talking about Liz Calloway's gorgeous recording of a song from that score, Since You Stayed Here, uh, which is on her album, uh, her first album called The Story Goes On. And I said to Dan, I said, you know, I have said, honestly, uh, you can tell your dad I've said in the past that if you listen to that recording by Liz, you would think this is one of the most beautiful songs ever written for the musical theater. And he said, oh, I'll I'll definitely tell him that. And, uh, you know, that brings up the whole question of sometimes people say that that somebody made a song sound better than it is. I'm not sure if that's possible, you know. Maybe they just make it sound as good as it is. Uh, and uh, Liz certainly does that for that song. Uh, so we're using that for our closer. And then for the opener, another example of her giving a performance of a song and making you think, this is absolutely fantastic. Why don't we know this song? This is a great, great song. And that one is... You there in the back row, oh yeah, uh, from Thirteen Days to Broadway mm-hmm. by Cy Coleman and Barbara Freed. Uh, so that's our opener, and then our closer is "Since You Stayed Here," uh, co-written uh, by Josh Rubens and Peter Larson. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to see Josh Rubin's shows at Harvard uh, when he was there, so uh, I'm very familiar with him. And I love the lyric in Brownstone about babies. There's an assassin in each bassinet. (laughs) (laughs) Dan also uh, went to Harvard and he's got, he's really got great pedigree. And uh, this, this uh, um, organization he's involved with uh, dealing with uh, youth with serious illnesses and trying, you know, bring theater into their lives. It's, it's just wonderful. Mm -hmm. So it's great to, uh, you know, we, we, sometimes lament that some young people um don't know the history and and are not really interested in all that well he here's one who knows the history i mean some of the some of the um reviews he's written for me recently uh he's working on half a sixpence because we never had a review of half a sixpence uh he did busker alley uh and uh, he's got a lot of knowledge of things that came before which i think is is always so important so i'm I'm really excited Mm -hmm. about these new additions to our castalbumreviews.com all right so on behalf of michael portant here and peter felicia this is james marino saying thanks so much for listening to broadway videos this week on broadway bye 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 the colors in the trees have changed now strange
You'd never recognize the room.